Welcome to the Know Your Rights podcast with Orlando attorneys Albert Bazzotti and Joel Osborne from the Bazzotti and Osborne Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Know Your Rights podcast. I am your host, Angelo Malone, and I am here with my co-hosts and Orlando attorneys, Albert Bazzotti and Joel Osborne from the Bazzotti Osborne Law Firm. Gentlemen, say hello. Hey, guys, how you doing? Hey, how's everyone doing? So today's topic involves the rapper Shad Moss, also known as Bow Wow. I don't remember what year he got rid of the little from his name, but but he is now known as Bow Wow. And I'm going to read here an AP article and kind of he's 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 all grown's up now. So it's from the it's the same guy from the movie, right? Like Mike. Remember like Mike? The Jordan movie. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know. I wonder if at the time he was Lil Bow Wow, but <laughs> <laughs> grown up he was Bow Wow in that movie, he could dunk. <laughs> well, grown up Bow Wow's got himself into a bit of trouble because Atlanta police say rapper Bow Wow has been arrested following a fight with a woman. So police officers said that in email that the rapper Shad Moss was arrested early Saturday. Police were called to an address in Midtown Atlanta around 4.15 a.m., When they arrived, a woman named Leslie Holden told them she'd been assaulted by Moss. Officers spoke with Moss, who said that Holden, the female, had assaulted him. So police say both Moss, Bow Wow, and Holden had visible injuries on both of them. Officers couldn't tell who was the primary aggressor, so both were charged with battery. Police say that Both were being processed and would be taken to jail. It wasn't clear if either had an attorney who would be able to comment. So we today are going to have two lawyers comment on that on our podcast. So I was wondering if you can first right off the bat, gentlemen, tell me what you think of this case. What's your initial reaction? Uh, Initial reaction, you know, it's a different climate nowadays. My question should be. Is this typical if there's a situation where both participants in a domestic situation look as if they were both hurt and there's no way for the police to tell who the aggressor was? Is it typical for both to be taken down? Yes, that was the correct procedure. I think the cops followed the correct procedure if they really couldn't tell if both had sustained visible injuries and you cannot determine who was the primary aggressor. I think they did do the correct thing. How about you, here, Angelo and Joel, the thing is, because we're in Florida, like once the cops are called and a domestic violence investigation is going to happen, someone is going to jail. And that's just by the statute, Florida statute. When the law enforcement officer makes an investigation, they're going to have to arrest one person. When you mentioned the facts in this case, from reviewing the facts and looking at it, I can see why the officers arrested both parties. But just to make sure the listeners understand, they were both charged with separate crimes. I believe Leslie was charged uh, allegedly with assault and Bow Wow was charged with domestic violence battery, which is two separate crimes. But let me ask you this, especially with this situation. They both had injuries. Now, have you had a chance to examine both the party's injuries? I saw uh, little Bow Wow's mugshot and it looked like uh, he had visible scratches on his forehead. On his face. So, yeah, I never saw uh, the young lady's mugshot. Did you get a chance to look at it? I saw both. So, I mean, I did. It looked to me, it looked like little Bow Wow was cut up pretty bad. I mean, his facial injuries were visible. But let's just set the stage of exactly how this went down, because as attorneys are especially defense attorneys, we need to figure out what exactly happened in this situation. So it was alleged that 
cops were called around 4 a.m. So the, the whole argument is that little Bow Wow and his girlfriend, Leslie Holden at the time, they had an argument based on Leslie supposedly hitting another on, on another dude at a party and Bow Wow being there and seeing that he felt disrespected. He packed up her bags in the home and said, it's time for you to leave. That's when an argument happened. Leslie supposedly allegedly started throwing a night nightstand and items at him. Supposedly that's where the cuts came. And then the cops are came and then an investigation goes on. So in that situation, Joel, I guess I would ask you, what do the cops look at when they first examine a victim, a, and an, an alleged assailant, something like that. What was the first thing that you would think from the cops perspective? You know, the cops showing up to this, it's with the celebrities, it might be different, but I think the cops, the first thing they look at is who's the calmer of the two. You know, usually the person that's more frantic, more, you know, more um, has a louder tone, more aggressive, more, you know, emphatically making their point. You know, I think the truth, when someone's telling the truth, they're they're calmer. They're just, it is what it is. They're just telling what happens, you know? So I think that's one of the things that the cops look at is, you know, who's, who's going to give an accurate uh, description of what happened in a calm, detailed manner without just flying off the handle, yelling, screaming. I think that's one thing they look at, you know, I'm sure that, you know, they listen to the call, you know, the, I was going to ask the, you that. That's really interesting that you mentioned that the calls fresh in their mind. So they, they've listened to the call, you know, and when they show up, I'm sure, you know, another thing they're looking for is visible sustained injuries. I'm sure, you know, if it's in an apartment, you know, they're going to try to gain access to the apartment or dwelling. If it's a call to a dwelling, they're going to look for the, you know, the normal things, alcohol. Um, they're going to look for uh, drugs. They're going to, you know, the stuff they're, they're going to look for on the people is, you know, uh, signs of intoxication, whether it be, you know, uh, the smell of marijuana, burnt marijuana or alcohol on the breath. Usually a lot of these places that's called domestic violence situations because it happens in a domestic uh, location. See, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you on a one point, Joel. This is one thing I want to say. I don't think the cops actually listen to the 911 call. Do you really think they do? Because think about it. A person calls in 911, it goes to a dispatcher. Really dispatch, they can only relay that information to them. So they wouldn't. I don't know if they can. Well, that's kind of what I think they could get a sense from the dispatcher. I'd not listen to the call, but, you know, have a sense from the call from the dispatcher. Yeah. You know, what's going on? They have a general idea who called, what's the the allegations, where they're going to. But you're right, Albert. They're not listening. No, directly. but that's interesting you say that, though, because when you're talking about the tone of a person, when the officers arrive on the scene, that person could be aggressive. They could be hysterical 911 when they call 911. But when the officer comes to the scene, they can be like, this is the person that hit me. Look at my injury is very calm. And then would you think that would lead to them maybe being more credible with the officer? Well, like I said, I think a lot of things go into, you know, the there's a lot of variables that go into the officer's determination. It's one of the rare instances like, you know, this is a he said, she said type of thing that usually occurs in a domestic situation with not, you know, where there's no recording, there's no other witnesses. It's usually just a he said, she said. So the things the cops going in there, you know, the first thing they're going to do is try to gain access to the domicile. They're not going to have a warrant, but they are going to try to gain access. And they're going to do that. How? By asking for consent. Usually consent will be given by one of the two parties because usually both have, you know, uh, actual or apparent authority to allow access. So as soon as the cops are entering the dwelling, the first things they're going to look for alcohol, drugs, visible injuries, signs of struggles. So that's the first thing from the cops thing is they're going to try to gain access to the dwelling because they don't have a warrant and they usually will get it. And, you know, I'd say I'm not going to put an exact number, but 
Usually they will get inside the dwelling. And then that's when they're starting, you know, they're playing detective. They're using their judgment to make a determination. You know, the truth is very subjective nowadays, it seems. So, you know, they're just they're using cues, clues, you know, signs of impairment, signs of, you know, it's almost like a mediation in a caucus. They're going to separate both sides and they're going to hear each side of the story. And, you know, if each party's still yelling at each other, you hear the cops say this all the time. You know, you'll have your chance to tell your side of the story. If anyone's worked in family law, you know, we, we've, we, you see this all the time. It's just usually, you know, when when you tell when these people are, you know, getting down to it and they're separated and they're telling their sides of the story. One thing I think comes across really clear to the cops is someone that's calm. The truth to me, if someone's in, you know, truly telling, you know, a pretty accurate description of the truth, it's a calmness. You know, it's not. It doesn't have to be exaggerated. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be drama. When I was a prosecutor, Joel, that's the one thing I always loved dealing with calm victims because to me, they seemed a lot more credible because they were really understanding of the situation. They, they understood what exactly the defendant did to them. They were very, they were very detailed in, in what happened to them, how it happens, the specific nature of the injuries, the lead up and build up to it. So I agree, actually, with you that some of these things are very, very important. Yeah. So that's the number one the stuff I think the cops are really, really, really looking for when they do an initial, you know, when they're doing the initial investigation on one of these. He said, she said domestic violence is in a domestic situation with no other witnesses. So let's say you're representing both of you. You're representing one of these clients. What is the best way to handle police show up, knock on the door? There has been a situation that's gone on. We'll leave out who is the actual aggressor. What is your advice? You've seen these cases before, both of you. What are some things that you advise right off the bat? Should they let the officers in? Should they not let them in? Angelo, this is a great question. And we do. We, we handle this all the time. You know, there's a thing called actual authority. If both people are residents and it's usually the case, both people are on the lease, even if the like, let's say in this instance, you know, uh, the girlfriend called the cops and Chad, you know, little Bow Wow doesn't want him in. If the girl has authority or apparent authority, you know, to let these officers in, they will get access to the place. You can't really stop the cops getting in if the other person does have authority to let them in and wants them in. It would have to be both of the people, you know, the husband, the wife, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, not wanting them in. And usually in this situation, they can't agree on anything because they're going at each other's throats. Right. And the cops are going to talk to everyone that's there. If there's other witnesses or other parties that were there on the scene or in the residence, they're going to speak with everyone. But I think what Joel says is important, being calm right away, because the officers see that. They see that you're calm, that you're, you give. But Albert, we do this all the time. And the, this is the truth. You have to protect yourself, whether you're the guy or the girl. Um, in the situation, it doesn't matter because not all the times will the truth come out. Very the true. cops are going to make determination and it might not be. Yeah, correct. But also you're always on video, too. Would they always have a body cam video coming up? So if you like you said, if you're not calm and you want to take this to trial, you're, the juries are going to see that you're very pompous or you're arrogant, that you're aggressive. And then it may go against your case. Very good point. You know, 20 years ago, not every cop was equipped with a body cam. Now all the cops are equipped with a body cam. The uh, state attorneys will have access to the body cam footage. You know, when we request discovery, they immediately will tell us, hey, we have body cam footage. So good point, Albert. And that goes back to what I said is you got to stay calm. But what's most important, um, Angelo, is if you're in one of these situations, 
and it does result in you getting charged, you know, and it can always is, you know, you don't want to say too much, you know, you don't want to say too much because anything you say can, can be used against you and you need to call. A and you know, what's agent. really important, Angela, this is one thing that I think it's pride's a big thing in a lot of these cases. So let, let me, let me just take for an example, a domestic violence case. Let's just say the male is going to be charged with the crime. And let's just say it's a mutual combat issue where both parties allegedly swung or were trying to protect themselves and there's injuries on both parties. If you're injured in this at all, if you have a scratch on you, I don't care if it's a red mark, you tell the cops I'm injured and I need to take, you need to take a picture of this. Anything you don't photograph that day of the incident, you want everything photographed, regardless of if you're the victim or you're the defendant, because it could go to your case and, and your defense at trial. As a former prosecutor, you don't know how many times I have to see a little red mark, a small little red mark, but it's an injury. It's something you may have to argue, but also defense attorneys and defendants would put on that defense. All you have to do as a defense attorney is prove a reasonable doubt and mutual combat. If there's a mutual combat between two parties, that's self-defense. Yeah, self-defense. That's a reason to doubt. So I always tell it's important to get pictures taken, even if you aren't the primary aggressor. If there was some aggression and you have injuries, law enforcement needs to know that because then your defense attorney at trial can cross-examine them and be like, well, there's pictures of my a client's injuries, correct? These types of pictures, you took these pictures and you also verified that you can see the photograph you see that was taken at that scene. You took it, right? And you can verify it's a fair and accurate representation of the injuries he suffered at the scene. And it can just go to your case in chief and your defense as well. So that's something I think is important. That's interesting. A question I have is what happens if I witness a case of domestic violence. So we're at Thanksgiving conversation gets a little heated and there is. A, a, it's, it's not over the lines, I hope. Right. The lines right. losing another Thanksgiving Day football game. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's say let's say I witnessed this. You know, what happens as a witness if the police show up? What should I do? What can family members do to help one of their own who are involved in this? Joel, this is a difficult issue, don't you think? Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's very difficult dealing with these yeah. types. Yeah, you know, if 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 there's a witness, it's not going to be like a, a he said she said domestic violence. You know, this in domestic violence, it's a very rare case. There's not a lot of witnesses, but if there's a witness, you know, what they have to do, Angelo, is tell the truth. They have an obligation legally to tell the truth to the officer. So if there's witnesses, the first thing the cops are going to do is they're going to talk, like uh, Albert said, to everyone who was there. So if there's witnesses, they'll be questioned by the cops. You know, they'll be asked who's the primary aggressor. They're asked the normal questions. And what do what should they do is even though they want to stick up for somebody, you know, they yeah, really but you know, that doesn't happen the all the truth. time, Joel, especially that's what annoys me so much, especially about not, these cases. It's not fair. If you're looking, you know, I, you know, there's cases where, you know, we've had um, men just tell us, you know, we haven't done it. We haven't done it. We've gotten the discovery back. <laughs> But there's one witness. There's yeah, one, alleged, one witness. That's the girlfriend. One punch with no marks. And it's like, you know, we believe, you know, there's times where we'd actually believe it. And we, usually, we just got to tell our clients, you know, unfortunately, life's not fair. You know, it, it sounds like we're talking to our kids, Angela, doesn't it? But it's the truth. You know, life's not fair. And that, you know, when life's not fair, sometimes you got to <laughs> lawyer up. <laughs> now, another question I have is, do you think that celebrity plays any role in this. If someone shows up and there's a domestic situation like this, do you think him being a celebrity plays a role at all? It shouldn't legally, but I don't think it does. I, I don't think it does. You yes. do? I think it definitely does in the sense that uh, if the cop knows who it is, it's going to play. It's human behavior. 
it's going to affect the cop's judgment. It depends how much it moves the needle. That depends on the cop. Hopefully, like you say, Albert, in an ideal situation, it wouldn't move the needle at all. The cop would handle a Michael Jordan. For example, but like he reality, was driving impaired. They did their job. Yeah. And, and everyone knows who Tiger Woods is. That's his hometown. Yeah, no. And that, and that would be an, that would be an exceptional cop. So in an, in an ideal situation, the cop would not treat him differently. But, you know, I'm a Christian and we're not dreamers. It depends on the officer. So some officers could be swayed by celebrity. Yes. Angel, I think the question I would ask, are jurors swayed by celebrities? That's a very interesting one. Oh, that's fascinating. The reason why I, and, and you know, a thought just came to mind being a diehard Knicks fan. And even though we've been God awful for years, when Derrick Rose birthed into the <laughs> Knicks, Derrick Rose had a trial. It was a civil rape trial in California that was going on. And it was just interesting to me because the jurors found him not guilty. And as soon as they found him not guilty, every single one of them wanted to take a picture with him. I mean, it probably had nothing to do, but you just sit, think of something like that. You're just like, right. But you asked, you no, asked the question, you would like to, to hope do. it has nothing to do with, right. the, with right. the facts and what happened. No, yeah, that question, dream world, right? but it definitely does. It definitely affects. But that's something to get into yeah. another day. I know we're not yeah. talking about jurors and trials today, but anyway. No, I think that's great. I think you're, what you're saying is correct, Albert. Like with the officer, you would hope an officer, it wouldn't matter. But that's not realistic. That's a dream world. In this world, we've been conditioned to love celebrities. You know, we've been conditioned to idolize them. And that's very, you know, the example you gave just shows it. You know, after these jurors, you know, being someone that loves the Knicks and is always following New York media, I'm on it every day. (laughs) Yeah, this is a true story. You know, it sounds like, you know, correct behavior of jurors, jurors wanting to take pictures with Derrick Rose. So, yeah, I could definitely see an officer being swayed if he pulls up to a house and it's Michael Jordan, you know, or if it's it's just human behavior. So it's unrealistic to think that. Do it would you not think that, that here's a question that's a little more grounded and not more wrapped in celebrity? If does it matter when a police officer shows up, if it's a male or female who's the aggressor? You know what? I'm going to say. Some this is what, how I think it can matter, and it shouldn't matter this way. But a lot of officers do this. But this is what I want to say, Joel. Yeah, if you get pulled over, let's just say, for example, you get pulled over, officer. First thing they're going to do, they're going to check your history and your record. So I feel like when when an officer takes your name immediately at the same, the first thing they're looking at is seeing if you have any warrants, what your criminal history is, you have any felony convictions, anything like that. And I feel like sometimes a prior conviction of a, of a male or anyone that has an aggressive or violent history, even if it's a conviction for battery, uh, an officer will look at that more and be like, okay, this guy is prone to more violence since we've seen it before. Let's give him a step down right off the bat. What do you think about that, Joel? Again, I think, you know, these officers are not computers. The reason there is that Supreme Court case, Wren, when they, you know, delved into the pretext of officers and, you know, what's the pretext of officers? You can't really get into that. The cops are humans. They're going to have human thoughts. As long as they're following, you know, Ren said, as long as they're following probable cause or the following procedure, it really doesn't matter what they're thinking. But of course, when a cop's coming up to a place, he has, you know, rooted thoughts. He's conditioned to, certain, to think a certain way. You know, like you said, Albert, if he checks a record, and uh, there was another conviction of violence. He's going to bring that, you know, even though he shouldn't, he's going to bring take that me into you the for an example. Me and you get into a fist fight. So let's just say I have three convictions. You have zero. And then we go and the cop finds that out right away. Finds out I have three convictions for battery. You have nothing on your record. Who do you think they're going to believe right away? Credibility wise. Yeah. And exactly. So if a cop comes in, he sees a 300 pound 
offensive lineman and he's a five foot, you know, one, you know, it's not even just logic. You know, some of him, he might have a daughter. He might have, um, you know, real close with his sister. He just, you know, it could be a female cop. And yeah, I'm not saying, you know, it's just, there's a lot of variables that come in. You know, you would hope that a lot of this stuff doesn't come in, but it's just not realistic, guys. You know, human beings are human beings. A lot of times we are irrational, you know, but for the cops. So we don't want to make it seem like the cops. They have a very difficult job in this instance. It is tough when you're going, you're coming into a scene, you have two people, you know, sometimes yelling at you, very hostile. And, you know, they have to make a right determination because it could cost lives. You know, especially these domestic violence, there's always three or four officers here. And and what really bothers me is that there's one officer that will do like uh, a main investigation. Other officers, they're just like babysitters. They stand there with... Aggravates well, yes, me. Do more to the, the investigation. Do more input, and it, it helps the state. Uh, when I was a former prosecutor, I was so aggravated with these investigations because they go nowhere. You take a statement, you take a few pictures, and that's it. You don't delve into what really happened, what led to this. These other cops are just sitting there and babysitting, and like you can't talk to him yet. You need to wait until he's done talking to her. I'm like, you guys can do more. You can take more pictures. You can walk around, see what happened. They don't do anything. Hey, just because it's a, but it annoys me because it's a misdemeanor. Just because it's a misdemeanor, yeah, I, they think yes, and that really annoys me. And I know it's not getting off track, but a lot of cops treat misdemeanors and felonies way differently. When it still affects a normal civilian the same way, it's still a criminal conviction. And a lot of cops disrespect misdemeanor cases, don't give it the amount of the attention it needs, and especially something as serious as battery domestic violence should be taken a lot more seriously. That's just. My thoughts. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I definitely think anytime someone's liberty, you know, someone's Fourth Amendment, anytime someone's constitutional rights, you know, can be infringed upon. I think the cops have a duty, you know, to do impeccable police work. And, you know, it's our job, you know, to attack a case if they don't. And, and Angela, I know we're getting short, like getting close to the time, but there's one issue I do want to talk about with you guys. And that's about like how we can help what, like what hiring a defense attorney on a domestic violence case, how we can help with this type, these types of cases, these types of issues. Absolutely. That was the next thing I was going to get into. At this point we get taken down. Let's say I'm involved in a domestic violence situation. I get taken down. I'm in the jail. I get my phone call and I call you. What can Bazzotti Osborne do in this situation to help me out? Like, how does an attorney help someone in a domestic violence situation? Well, usually it's not from the, the phone call in the jail. You know, you'll, you'll get taken in, you'll have your first appearance, you know, with this, it is a misdemeanor. So bond, you know, usually will be granted. Probably a thousand, a thousand, thousand dollar misdemeanor domestic violence. You'll get bonded out. So you'll call us, you'll have an arraignment set, you know, for a couple months out, you'll have a, a piece of paper from the court. Like the most important thing that we're going to do right away. And that's when you call. Yeah. And that's when you're called usually when they're calling us and uh, but they're going to have probably a sentinel monitor right on their, uh, on their ankle for these types of cases, because they're victim type cases, cases, judges are, uh, they, they tend with a lot more caution. So they're going to want to put a sentinel monitor on you, which is to monitor you anywhere you go. Make sure you don't get close to the victim. That's why, that's why you call us immediately. We want to try and get that removed because it could be pricey. It could be very expensive. Some of these things, if you're not indigent, it could cost you up to twenty dollars. Just made me think of something, Albert. All and uh, some of the times there's some there's not even an arrest. Some of the times there's an incident. At, you know, we we handle cases like this, Albert. Yep, where there's cases. an incident at, let's say, a hotel, and then one of the other parties leaves. 
you know, the other party makes a state. Yep. The other party makes a statement and then you're getting what you're getting basically is a subpoena. Uh, you know, an information has been filed against you and you never have been arrested. So there's two types of ways. Either you're going the, you know, you, you took a ride in the car or, you know, you were not on the scene when the other person made the statement. And now, you know, the statement made its way to the ASA. The ASA decided to pick up and you have an information filed against you. And now you have a court date. You know, you know, another thing that I found that was really, really interesting. I can't believe I was just joking about it like a little while ago, how the bond is normally set at a thousand dollars. That's that's true. That's standard. But one thing you have to be careful for. And that's why I tell people you call us immediately on these 923 or police arrest affidavit reports they file. They put a bond amount there and almost always the police uh, circles a zero and puts a, a line through it as in no bond for domestic violence. And sometimes that gets lost in translation. If a state attorney who's doing first appearances doesn't catch it, the judge might miss and you might actually stay in. If it's a violent type of nature type crime, you might stay in for an extra few days in jail. That's why you want to try and call us early so we can get the bond set, get you out, even if there's a no contact order, get you a chance to return to your residence to pick up some belongings. And for the litigation process, you know, Joel, this is one thing. These are the types of cases I've, I've grown to love as a defense attorney is there's so much strategy that comes into it. And, and I feel like it's a game of bluff. Yeah. Yeah. Without question. These are the hardest cases for the, the state to prove unless it's just, you know, just, you know, it depends on the, it depends yeah, on the facts. The injuries. Fact. If the guy says yeah, I beat the, you know what, just, out of her. Yeah. It just depends on discovery, but, but remember, we started this with the Bow Wow. This, this is, you know, discussing the Bow Wow thing. In that case, the officers on scene could not just, you know, in one of those cases where it's not clear who's the primary. Yeah. These are the funnest cases for us because it's so hard for the state. You know, if the cops can't determine it, you know, then they're going to have some trouble, you know, in court proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Wouldn't you agree, Albert? So here we go. Absolutely, Joel. Joel, you're the uh, defense attorney for Little Bow Wow right now. He's charged with the crime. As a defense attorney, based on what you've seen, from what you've read, based on the injuries, based on some of the things we've talked about today, like um, Leslie, his alleged uh, girlfriend throwing possibly a nightstand or something like that, what would be some of the things that you would look to to build a defense for Little Bow Wow? Just, just to give our, our listeners an idea. From little bow outside, the first thing I'm doing, you know, if it's in Florida, you know, we don't, we Absolutely. are Florida. We're Florida attorneys. We do not, you know, so let's, let's bring it into Florida because we cannot, you know, make any, you know, determinations on Georgia law because neither of us are barred there. But if it's in Florida, the first thing I'm doing is I'm doing a public records request on the girl. You know, I want to see every parking ticket. I want to see her criminal convictions because. Crimes of dishonesty, know, possibly. Yeah. Crimes of dishonesty or felonies, because I want to know if I can impeach her on the stand. I want to know uh, that. So that's the first thing I'm doing. I'm going to do a public records request. The second thing I'm doing, you know, with Bow Wow or anybody, I'm seeing if they have any recording type equipment in their house. You know, now Nest is prevalent. You know, people not only have uh, recording devices on their doorbells, they have recording devices in their house. So the second thing I'm doing is I'm asking, do you have surveillance? You know, is this you know, is this has this incident on video because that, you know, what plays best to to, you know, either you don't you, you can bring that. to and the I see I see where you're coming from because you know, you you're trying to establish it. previous patterns of possible violence or behavior that could show something that could go toward bias or credibility as well. Yes. And not even, you know, when I'm talking about the recording, you know, do they have, you know, not even the incidents that occurred that if they have video of that. Excellent. But also, like you said, previous instances 
you know, previous, previous arguments. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, previous text messages between the two that show, you know, like, you know, your response be like, yo, you didn't have to scratch me like that. And she, you know, coming back. You statements. Know, you know, You're just, right. Absolutely. Yeah, all of that, all of that stuff I'm wanting to know. Yeah. And then, of course, I'm doing, you know, as soon as we get the case, what are we doing? A written plea of not we're filing a written plea of not guilty um, and we're asking to participate in discovery. You know, we're waving arraignment as to participate discovery. So I also want to see what the state has. But I'm also going to do a public records request, not only on the girl and her background, but I'm also going to do a public records request on the case because I want to see everything the case that that is public record as regards to the case, because sometimes it's different than what states give us as us for discovery. It's usually a little bit more uh, uh, voluminous. All right. And last, lastly, I want to, I want to get to you on this. So in this case, this little battle case, there's two corroborating witnesses. They both told the story that uh, Leslie, his girlfriend was the actual main aggressor. So let's take that same situation. We're in Florida. You're representing Bow Wow. You have two corroborating witnesses that, that are going to testify on your side. Are you, are you going to push this to trial? Are you going to waive speedy trial? Do you want to push the ball? How do you want to handle this? Because because, you know, you know, my opinion, you know what I would do on this. Yeah, this is not one we, you know, in criminal defense, when we have stinkers and it happens all the time, you know, we have a driving while license suspended where the only statement made is the person telling the cop, I, I don't have a license. <laughs> We're not taking that to trial. <laughs> You know, so in those cases, we wave and we stall. We just, you know, the path of least resistance, you know, just let us get caught up in the in the continual docket soundings, pre-trials. And we're just doing continuance after continuance and just, you know, hoping for a good deal. But in this case where we, you know, where there's actually a good defense. You have that made, big dude, smile. Yes. Like, it's like a big, like, I don't know. I have cold stone in my, in my head right now. I don't know why. It wasn't a little bow on Fast and Furious too. We're putting the pedal to the metal. You know, that's, that's kind of, Hey, he was Michael. He was Michael Jordan. He's Michael Jordan. He's little Michael Jordan. Yeah. Little Mike, uh, little fast. Um, you know, we're putting the pedal to the we're metal. We're taking this to trial. We're taking this to trial. Again, what are we doing with the witnesses? We're also reviewing Absolutely. them for the same thing that applies to any witness, you know, for the girlfriend, um, applies to them. If they're too, you know, if they come off terrible on the stand, then, you know, two corroborating witnesses is worth, you Absolutely. know. Um, but at what? the end of the day, even though if me and you, our head lights up and we want to go to trial, we want to defend our rights for our client, it's not up to us. It's up to him or her at the end of the day. Yeah, but, but but you know, as a, as criminal defense attorneys, we tell you, you know, we give you our, you know, opinion. And in these cases where it's hard for the state to make their case, it is the type of case where we set for trial and we call yeah, their And blood. don't ever be intimidated, if especially in court. Some state attorneys might be speaking to us, defense attorneys, and be like, fine, push it to trial. We're here every day. We'll go to trial. Yes, fine. We go to trial, too. We're not the type that are scared. We're not the type that are bluff. We know the facts of our cases. We know what our witnesses say. We know what our defense is. And we're ready to go to trial, too. We're not scared. Let's go. Albert, that's a great point because I can tell you as a non-lawyer, my biggest fear is to go to trial for anything. So it's nice to know that the other side is not afraid. And does that factor in sometimes for you guys having to talk when you see it and you know how, how easy the case is or how beneficial it would be to go to trial? Is that something that's difficult sometimes convincing the uh, person to go to trial? Joel knows me like Joel knows I love to go to trial, but Joel has gotten this into me. It's not up to me. It, and you have to you have to convince them. Right. Sometimes you have to have a serious discussion. 
And you have to weigh the benefits of trial versus the negatives of trial. It's not about getting it. It's not about our egos. It's truly it's on the best interest of the client. Right. Um, you know, we've had cases where pushing, you know, even though we've had a good a good factual basis to try the case, you know, whether it was a new law offense they picked up or some other type of instance, it just wasn't the best idea to go to trial. You know, it was best to keep pushing. So we always, you know, we, there's so many, yeah, there's so many factors that can come in. We'll always review the situation and we'll always, always suggest to the client what we feel is best, but then it's up to the client. Right. You know, all we can do is guess what we feel is the best, the best path. And then it's on you. But to be honest with you, usually, yeah, our clients are on board. You know, we've, if we're saying it's the, the way to go, they, they know, we know our job. They know. Uh, you know, why we, why we do what we do. So but when we're all on board, including the client, we're all, all in there. They help us throughout the trial. They help us with jury selection. They help us with little facts that we might be missing questions. And that's, that's what we tell our clients. If this is something you're passionate about and you want, right. we're going to fight for you. We're going to take this all the way. I can't guarantee you that we can win because you never know what a jury's going to do. You could feel so confident about those seven people you picked or it's 12, but you just never know. At the end of the day, it's it is a, it's a coin flip. It's a gamble. But yeah, these these domestic violence cases are very they're very unique. Right. You know, I think when most uh, young attorneys start uh, studying trial advocacy, you know, in in law school, every trial advocacy professor will introduce a domestic violence case like this. He said, she said no witnesses, minimal witnesses and have a young attorney. Argue. Go prove it. It just go prove the case. Yeah, that's every trial advocacy advocacy class ABA. You know, there will be this is you know, this is criminal law 101. This situation, it's just so unique and it's just it is what it is. It is definitely one of the cases where a good defense attorney, a good defense can, you know, make a difference between a conviction and uh, a return of not guilty. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank my co-host, Orlando attorneys, Albert Bazzotti and Joel Osborne. Thank you both gentlemen and take care everyone. Have a good weekend, everyone. Thanks guys. Talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Know Your Rights podcast with Orlando attorneys, Albert Bazzotti and Joel Osborne. For more information, feel free to reach out to them on the web at beoslaw.com, B-E-O-S-L-A-W.com, or call them at 407-421-1535.